we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And our guest this week is U.S. Representative Lance Gooden. He's congressman from the Dallas area who's been involved in talking about introducing legislation on the immigration issue in some interesting areas. And so we thought it would be informative to have him on the podcast to talk about what he's been involved in. Uh, congressman Gooden, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I guess the first thing I'd like to ask is, uh, I mean, you are in Texas, so in a sense, everybody, I guess, in Texas is interested in immigration to some degree just because of geography. But what attracted you to the immigration issue in particular? Unfortunately, it's not a very attractive issue. <laughs> I was happy that we seem to be making progress under the Trump administration. And then within a few weeks of him leaving office, things deteriorated pretty rapidly at the border. The border wall construction stopped. We started to see the number of crossings go up. And in the last year, we're it's so bad that this administration not even sharing the data. We have to work really hard to get it. And some of the things we've learned in the last six months have just been very disturbing. And as we talked about the issue more, people began to reach out to us. And some of them are whistleblowers within the government who have seen what's happening in places like San Diego, where I visited a few months ago, and learned that many of these migrants are being aided, in fact, by nonprofits who are using our tax dollars to do the aiding and helping them across, helping them get on airplanes without documentation, helping them evade court hearings, and helping them to burrow into society and evade any questions from law enforcement. So. What are some of these nonprofits? Are they getting taxpayer money? Yeah, let me start from the beginning. Sure. We've seen for the last year or so these caravans that start down in Central America. You hear about it. They say they're working their way up to whatever section of the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, it's hard to imagine a scenario where these caravans people could actually cross all the way across the U.S. border and go all the way into the interior of Mexico and make the journey, but they're getting help from the United Nations. I'm not talking about the NGOs, but I'm talking about the United Nations, right. who is receiving support from the U.S. government, among others, and they're helping sponsor these caravans. They're giving them debit cards and providing them with financial assistance throughout their journey to the U.S. border. When they get to the border, they then claim asylum status which has to be determined through a proper hearing. But in the time that they are awaiting for their trial date, they are aided by these NGOs. You've heard me talk about Catholic Charities, Jewish Family Council, the Lutherans are involved. And what they do is they go to the border and take these asylum seekers, these migrants, from homeland. And they're mm -hmm. paid by homeland to provide aid. 
So there's a perverse incentive to bring in more people because the more people that these Catholic charities, the Jewish Family Council bring in, the more money they get from the U.S. government. And it's a way that this Biden administration has helped to aid and, in fact, fund the invasion of our nation. You mentioned the United Nations. We've written some about this, this uh, where they give cash cards out to people who are in Mexico, as well as more recently, our analyst Todd Benzman wrote about United Nations funded NGOs down in southern Mexico giving this repressed memory therapy so that third country nationals who had claimed asylum in Mexico who were turned down come up and they have this therapy and they, you know, some psychologist says, you know, he suppressed the memory of his trauma of persecution and 90% of them, they get it. They win on the appeal, which then enables them to make their way through Mexico to the U.S. So this pretty clearly the United Nations is assisting in this effort. What can the United States do about it? You have made some suggestions, introduced some legislation on this. What is it the United States can do to try to sort of push the UN to stop promoting this flow of illegal immigrants to the north? Well, one, we can stop funding them. But before we had this problem, the reason it was difficult for these caravans to really make an impact and the reason we didn't have all this traffic is because we sent it to the rest of the world that we were securing our borders. President Trump said, don't come, and people believed him. It was not the open border policy, but since January of last year, President Biden and Kamala Harris have said, come on over. Right. And this, this message is crystal clear, not just Mexico, but throughout the world, that if you want to get to the United States, the path into the country is over the Mexican border. So that's why we're seeing so much uh, immigration from places like Jamaica, the Middle East. We have no idea who these people are. It's not a case of farm laborers who just want to come and better their lives, which may have been the case 10, 20 years ago. Now, we've got huge groups of people coming from all over the world, making their way to Mexico and up through the border with the help of the United Nations. And then when they get across that border, they've got groups like Catholic Charities who stand ready to put them in a hotel for a few days and get them on a plane to wherever they want to go. So, first of all, kind of what you're saying is you teach people how to treat you. I mean, if we've made it inviting to be illegal immigrants, people are going to assist illegal immigrants to get here. But let's say there were a different approach, either by this administration or a new administration, that made it less inviting to be an illegal immigrant. The UN and the NGOs are still there. What would defunding those groups? look like? How would you do that? Well, I've got a bill that I've recently filed, two separate ones. One that defunds the UN, the Office of Migration, IOM. They're the ones who are facilitating this. But here at home, much easier. It's hard for us to control what the UN does, whether we send them money or not. Right. But here at home, it's hard to imagine Catholic charities going to the efforts they're going to without the aid of the government. They've got homeland dollars flowing They've got state of California in cahoots. I visited one of these shut down Four Point Sheridan. It's the Four Point Sheridan Sea World. If you look it up, you can't really? look a room there. And one of these NGOs, I believe it was Catholic Charities, runs this place and they have the whole place closed down and buses come in several times a day, unload. I believe they put them up in the hotel for a couple of days and right. then they take them to the airport, give them a packet of information on how to evade arrest and how to assimilate 
and then they're never heard from again. And Catholic Charities, among these other groups, saying, well, that's not true, we're following the law, we're helping out mankind. Uh, but what they're doing is encouraging human trafficking. They're emboldening the cartels, and they are making the problem much worse. And I believe it's criminal, and in addition to defunding them, one of the things I'm looking forward to when Republican state controls the House is having some uh, very investigative hearings. I'm looking forward to us having subpoena power. I asked Catholic Charities, Jewish Family Council, some of these other, I believe, law-breaking groups to preserve records and turn over documents to us immediately. Otherwise, they would have a subpoena when we take over, and I do believe that will happen. But I think that it's important for the American people to know that these groups who in the past have done really great work are now in cahoots with the government, with the United Nations, and indirectly with the cartel. And they're bringing people across our border and shuttling them across the United States. We have no idea who they are. And I think it's a real disservice to not just Americans, but to also their donors and people who have supported these groups for many years under the expectation that they would continue to do great work for mankind. But what they're doing at the border is quite the opposite. If the Republicans do take the majority in the House, at least, because you're in the House, what committees would do this kind of oversight? What would be the priority for the new Republican majority with regard to these kind of issues? You guys, I assume, are looking forward and planning for that. I'd like to see a select committee that would address the immigration crisis at the border and could really focus on some of these items we've been discussing today. But I think even without that, there are committees like Homeland Security and the Judiciary Committee would probably be good places to start. And then appropriation. Why are we sending dollars to groups like Catholic Charities and paying them to bring migrants into our nation and help them escape their trials uh, to determine their asylum status? Why, why do we continue to throw dollars at these groups that are working against this? So these are things that we'll look into when we retake control of the House. And in January, I think you might see some select committees. But whether you do or not, you're going to see a lot of action from standing committees with respect to subpoenas, hearings on everything from the border crisis to this administration and to a host of other things that we've been asking Democrats to address without any luck for the last four years. Right. Specifically on some of these immigration issues, do you get a sense that leadership is interested in pursuing this kind of strategy? I do. I believe that the leadership of our U.S. House is keenly aware that the biggest issue to the voters, aside from inflation, is immigration. We've got to do what no one has done so far, and that is hold this administration accountable. We've been unable to get any kind of answers from them, and the oversight role of the majority is something that we don't plan to let up on. And so I'm very confident that the leaders of our House will hold hearings. I don't know if they want to go the route of a special committee, but the standing committees that we have currently are able to hold hearings and get some answers. And then we can also work with the powers that we have in blocking legislation that this White House is going to need. You know, if we've just got the House and we don't have control of the Senate, or even if we do have control of the Senate, Biden's still going to be president for two years. He's going to have to have a budget bill or appropriations bill passed the House 
or we're going to have massive shutdowns. And so when that moment comes, I think that you will see some Democrats perhaps make some tough votes that they haven't had to make because they've been in the majority. And once you've got control of one of the chambers, you can at least get something that you want. And something is more than what we've had the last four years in the House. So we're looking forward to that. And we're already making plans. We don't want to start working on how we're going to govern the day after the election. We're already making preparations. So we're in a position to govern. We want to be better organized than the Democrats were when they took power. They have really showed us how not to run things. And so we're already making preparations, not measuring the drapes, but being in a position to be prepared to govern when we take over in right. a year. Basically from day one. Yeah, because the presidents from the other party, the two things you guys have control over is obviously the spending bills and then oversight, you know, hearings and subpoenaing people. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Another thing that you have weighed in on, and again, this is you know, a funding issue related to nonprofit groups basically getting money from the government to immigrate people is this issue of loans, travel loans for refugees. How does that work and what can we do about it? Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on that particular program, but I know it's rife with corruption and mismanagement. It is just stunning to me that we are giving money to anybody that's not a U.S. citizen, much less someone who's come into this country the wrong way. Right. And, you know, it's also a shame for those who are legitimate asylum seekers. There was once a day where we actually had legitimate asylum seekers. And unfortunately for those who are legit asylum seekers, the process has been abused. And now everyone who comes to the border says they're doing so in the name of political refuge. And that's why these NGOs have really capitalized off of this and it's taking advantage. But I'd like to see this loan program be scrapped. I'd like to see the law enforced. I'd like to see our nonprofits get back to the business that they started in, which was taking care of Americans in need. And then we can discuss things south of the border. But we've got so many problems here at home. I think I could knock on doors in a Democratic neighborhood and a Republican neighborhood and ask them, would you like me to prioritize the needs of Americans here at home or those from other countries first? And I am willing to bet my life that the majority would say, let's take care of Americans first. And that's something that has been lost since President Biden took over. This America first mentality that we were getting so good at was just thrown out and we have suffered as a nation. And we're continuing to suffer. And I think that's something that we will re-engage in when we take back over. There's just no good reason not to put our country first before we start letting everyone else in. Along those lines, what kind of feedback have you gotten from constituents about the immigration issue in general or your commentary on it, that sort of thing? What are you hearing from your constituents? Oh, they love it. You know, I I was stopped just this morning at breakfast in my district mm -hmm. and People come up to me and they thank me for the work we're doing, but they also ask me, is it really as terrible as it seems? Are they really that crazy? They meaning uh, those in power. Right. And, you know, the answer is, sadly, it is. It, it is that bad. But the help, I believe, is on the way. I do believe that the American people are awake. But in my district, I've had positive feedback. I've had Catholics in my district reach out to me and say, we are devout Catholics, but Catholic Charities has lost their way, and we appreciate you standing up. And we hope that this does get investigated, because we don't like to see this charity that 
shares our church's name, engaging in illicit activity. And I hear the same thing from the Jewish leaders in my district and in the Dallas area about the Jewish Family Council. This is not something that they want their contributions being spent on, shuttling migrants across the nation, evading TSA checkpoints with arrest warrants and trial dates that they have no intention of appearing at. And so those in my district are really pleased with our work, um, but just so saddened that it's come to this point, disgusted uh, with the deterioration that was so preventable had we not just pulled back and said, come on over, which is what this administration's done. So I think that the political ramifications will be very serious come November. And I also think the Biden administration knows that. Democrats know that. First, they were um, saying there was no crisis at the border. Then they were saying we all needed to be locked down and masked up for COVID. You're seeing a lot of regulations loosening up. I suspect by September, no one will even be talking about COVID on the Democratic side uh, because, you know, the science has not changed, but the polling has changed. The political science science has changed. The political science has changed for the Democrats. And so you're seeing a lot of actions that don't quite mesh with the mandates and the words that they've used over the last few years. You mentioned the uh, TSA issue. This is something you had drawn some attention to as well, that TSA confirms that illegal immigrants, in order to get past TSA, like everybody else, you know, we're all waiting in line, taking our shoes off and all the rest of it, they can present arrest warrants from Homeland Security as their identification to get on airplanes. That seems kind of bonkers. What have you said about that? It's totally crazy, and I'm not even making it up. It's so crazy. It sounds like something that a politician might even make up. Right. (laughs) But I actually reached out to TSA because I heard what you just said. I heard it as a rumor a month ago. I said, surely that's not right. And I sent a letter on my letterhead to TSA. They responded back on their letterhead. This Mm -hmm. is no secret. I've put the letter out there saying that we accept arrest warrants as a type of identification to get past security and onto a United States commercial airline. And that's just totally crazy to me. You know, I can't go into a restaurant in Washington, D.C. without pulling out a vaccine card and a a government-issued photo identification. Mm -hmm. But someone who's not even an American, as long as they have an arrest warrant, can get onto an aircraft with your family in mind and fly anywhere. If that's not crazy, I don't know what crazy is. Well, feel free to dodge this question if you want to, but there has been talk, and I think at least some of your colleagues have brought this up, about impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I support that totally. Once you guys have a majority, what are your thoughts on that, if you feel comfortable talking about it? Yeah, I I think he's, he's done a terrible job. He's lied under oath to members of Congress. He has failed to answer to his constitutional duty to respond to members of Congress. And he's, I won't say single-handedly responsible, but he's certainly been a a ringleader of this problem that we have. We don't want to get all jammed up talking about who we're going to impeach or maybe impeach because things are going well for us politically. We are united as a party. The American people, I believe, are united behind us. The Democrats are all over the place in a circular firing squad. If history is any guide, when the party in power impeaches the president, then that president's party typically rallies around him. If you look back in history, Bill Clinton's party rallied around him when he was impeached. 
Republicans were never more united than we were during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. That was a huge united moment for us. I remember when he held up that newspaper and said acquitted. Different the second time. But my point in all of this is there will be a time to hold this administration accountable between now and when we take over the House. Unfortunately, bringing attention to the American people and shining a light on what's happening, the best thing we can do is ensure that the American people have all the facts going into November. Come January, though, when we are in power, we will do whatever the oversight role of Congress requires to ensure that this administration is held accountable. And if they've broken the law, whether it's a secretary or the president himself, if impeachment is the answer, then impeachment will be the action. And I have full confidence in the Republican majority that I suspect will have come January to execute the will of the American people and the mandate that I believe they'll give us in November. And I'm, I'm asking this personally because I am a Republican. Our think tank is not only nonpartisan, we actually have a kind of wide variety of views here because immigration isn't really a right-left issue as much as it's an up-down issue. But personally, as a Republican, my fear always is that when the Republicans take the majority, I just have this sneaking suspicion they're going to squander it as far as longer-term goals and the kind of you know, basic statutory changes that really would benefit from immigration. Are you or other members of the caucus giving thought beyond the oversight, which is essential, obviously, but that's a kind of immediate thing, giving thought to longer-term priorities and changes that even if they don't end up being enacted next year are the kind of thing that would come up when there's a Republican administration, maybe two years after that? Yes, the answer is yes. And, you know, I think there's even things we can do when we're in the majority, but we don't control both chambers. Right. Um, As I said earlier, no uh, spending bill is going to get passed without passing the House. And if Republicans control the House, and the president and Democrats still control the Senate and the White House, they've got to work with us to get whatever spending package they want. That would be a time where I believe Republicans will come together and say, what is the one or two things that we just absolutely have to have? And if the Democrats will cave and give it to us, could we swallow whatever other bitter pills are in this spending bill? That's a conversation I'll have to have with my constituents when I say, hey, hypothetically, if we get to this point, If I told you we could solve this problem at the border, but it would come at a cost of me voting for an otherwise bad spending bill, is that a sacrifice you'd be able to make? Now, if you look at where we are now, all these terrible spending bills have been passing without any action at the border, so we'd still be in a better place. But these are tough decisions that you make when you're in the majority, but you don't control both chambers of the White House. Once we win back the White House, should we be fortunate enough to then that will be a different story. If Donald Trump is the next president, I suspect he has really made some great plans. And perhaps he would have done a few things differently with respect to leaning on the advice of the House Speaker, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think whether it's Donald Trump or someone else, you'll see some major executive action once we take back over the White House. But in the meantime, there are tools that we'll have in the majority if the House is the only Republican body in Washington that I think will immediately make a difference and be better for the country. Okay, well, very good. This is Representative Lance Gooden, congressman from Texas, from the Dallas area, who's a leader speaking out on certain immigration issues. Appreciate your joining us, Congressman Gooden, and uh, we may ask you back once some of these 
things we're talking about happen, whether it's a change in the majority in the House or otherwise. So anyway, I appreciate your joining us. I appreciate you, and I, uh, I thank you for your work. Thank you. Take care. Finally, I wanted to talk about the recent border apprehension numbers. The January numbers came out recently, and there were about 147,000 arrests at the southern border by the Border Patrol. That's a huge number just on its own, and it's double the level of January 2021. But we actually had two posts this week, one by Art Arthur, Andrew Arthur, and one by Todd Benzman. And in a sense, they were kind of glass half full, glass half empty look at these numbers. The half empty part, maybe even more than half empty, three quarters empty, was from Art Arthur, where he pretty much reported the numbers. And the title of his post was January Border Numbers Reflect Ongoing Chaos. And this is absolutely the case. It's a terrible situation. It's still a crisis, an emergency by any meaningful definition. And not only the numbers in January double what they were in the previous January, but we're seeing increasing percentage coming from farther and farther away and not from just from Mexico and the northern three countries of Central America, but from more and more countries farther away. So that's definitely the glass half empty take. The glass half full was Todd Benzman's take. And what he was suggesting is that the Biden administration actually is deporting more people by air that they catch at the border back to their home countries than they have in quite a while, and that that is starting to show in the numbers. Because even though January's number was double what it was in the previous January, so it's terrible. But it's actually the fourth month in a row where numbers have gone down. And the peak was in July of last year, and it's gone up and down some since then, but it has gone down pretty consistently over the last four months. And a big part of that explanation is not, you know, the vice president's supposed efforts to address root causes, which not only couldn't have borne fruit, haven't even really happened yet, but rather the Biden administration's decision in August to start deporting people by air because they realize the political peril they're in from this. Essentially, the most ideologically committed anti-borders people have been losing out in the struggle within the administration to the people who are still anti-borders. Let's not fool ourselves. But they're more prudent and realistic, politically speaking, and realize that nobody really wants what they want and they have to approach it more carefully. And so there's actually been a pretty aggressive effort. This was last year, not just returning some Haitians back to Haiti to address that situation in Del Rio with all of those people camped under the bridge, what have you, but there are significant numbers of flights now, and you can check that on these flight report websites, where the significant number of ICE flights to southern Mexico, to Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. So, you know, it could well be both that the decline in numbers is partly due to these new deportation flights and also that a larger share are coming from other places where we're not flying people back to. 
which is in a sense sort of the bad news side of this. And the reason I say it's the glass maybe isn't quite half full, it's maybe not even a quarter full, there's something there, hopeful, in the sense that maybe the administration is getting some results because it's actually doing the kind of stuff that the Trump administration and every other administration did in enforcing immigration law. The problem, of course, is that with all of the other policies the administration has in place welcoming illegal immigrants and rewarding them, it's not clear that these air deportations, which you can make a good case are having some effect, it's not clear that they alone will actually be able to wrestle this border crisis and bring it to some kind of reasonable end because, in a sense, what we're doing is sending more mixed messages. We're flying some people all the way back home, which is a very effective way of dealing with it because these are not Mexicans just being sent back across the border. These are people who were sent all the way back home to Central America or elsewhere and basically you know, lose all of the money they just spent on smuggling. So it makes it much less attractive to try this. On the other hand, if you are still rewarding illegal immigrants, there's still going to be a significant number of people who are going to try, you know, try their luck and see if they can essentially win the lottery. So it's not all bad. We need to understand that the situation at the border is fluid, that it's not like it's always going to get worse every day and in every way. So it seems to me appropriate to applaud the administration for very quietly and hoping no one takes notice that they're deporting some people. And that seems to be having some effect, but they need to really do a full 180 on a lot of these other immigration policies of theirs if they're ever to return to the kind of relative stability and control that the Trump administration was able to achieve. This is Mark Krikorian, and that's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. If you get this podcast through any of the platforms that allow you to rate it or rank it or um, you know, give some kind of feedback, please do so. If not, feel free to email us with comments, complaints, compliments, whatever you got, and you could just send it to me directly, msk at cis.org. I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you. <laughs>